I'd like to uh, share with you today a continuation of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. This is the other side of the bookend sermons. Last week we were in chapter 12. We talked about the body of Jesus Christ, the body that we are a part of. There is a unity. There is an equality, all in Christ. And there should be an empathy amongst us that we are there in each other's times of sorrow as well as each other's times of joy. For we are the body. We are the body of Christ. And now Paul in this chapter moves once again talking to the church at Corinth and wants to remind what it is to live a Christian life in Jesus Christ. And he writes these words. I'm sure many of you have heard them before. They are used especially during marriages. But these words have special meaning to us as we, the body of Christ, gather. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, starting with the very first verse. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. God's blessing on the reading of His Word. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. How many of you know what a hat trick is? Hat trick? Okay. Bob, what's a hat trick? Hat trick. What's a hat trick? Three goals. Three goals. We use it primarily in holly. 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 Yeah, we use it in holly. We use it in hockey. Three goals during a game. But that isn't where it started. It actually started in England with cricket. It was a cricket match when one player took out three wickets on three successive balls. 
and eventually they got adapted to other sports, including hockey, water polo. It's even darts. If you throw consecutive bullseyes, three bullseyes, hat trick. Now for the cricket match, when it started back in the 1800s, the guy got through three wickets and with three successive balls, and then everybody was so amazed by that, they pooled all their resources, and they took a donation, and they bought the guy a hat. That's why they call it hat trick. Now, hopefully that's not the only thing you take away from today's sermon, but now you know. And today, Paul has a hat trick for us. It is the heart of Christian discipleship, faith, hope, and love. And there's this beautiful passage in 1 Corinthians. Paul is speaking about living a life of Christian excellence, living a life in Jesus Christ and what we need to do. Paul is being extremely creative and poetic in these verses here in chapter 13. These quick phrases that describe how we are to live as a Christian. And Paul identifies these enduring values that should be a part of all of our lives as we strive for excellence in the Christian life. Faith, hope, and love, they are the height, the breadth, and the depth of our relationship with God. They are God's development of our life within as we are strengthened by His Holy Spirit. The first is faith. Paul is very clear that faith is a commitment to Jesus Christ. Faith is a choice that all of us make to trust in Jesus. It's not enough to believe that Jesus was a good man. He was. It's not enough to believe that Jesus was a man of high ideals. He was. It's not enough to believe that Jesus was of great moral character. He was. But we must reach the point that we are willing to commit to surrender our lives to the one called Jesus Christ. The one that they call Savior. Otherwise, we're just checking marks off in the boxes. We need to commit. We're just going through the motions of religion. We're just going through the motions of church unless we're willing to say, I surrender. There's nothing significant or lasting about a shallow faith where you just check off the boxes. We've got to discover the one, the one of Jesus Christ that makes living this life vital. Now, faith is not something that you obtain in some mystical, magical manner. It's not a pill that you take or a drink that you can consume. Faith is something that is learned. Faith is something that grows in our hearts and in our lives after the seeds are planted. And that's why it's so important that what we do with our children and our youth is to plant the proper seeds so that their faith will grow and that we will be there to help them every step of the way. For those who believe in Jesus Christ, who have made that commitment, our hearts are filled with Jesus' living presence inside of us. And his response comes out, a vital part of our lives, the reality that Christ is living inside of us. How many times have you heard me, there's a vast difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. Because in knowing Jesus, he takes a place in your heart, a vital place in your heart. It is a dynamic living entity in your heart. 
I've been to the Holy Land twice. By God's will, hopefully I'll have a chance to go again. But in walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, those seeds of faith that were planted so long ago truly begin to blossom and grow. You see things and hear things that you would have never seen or heard in any other way. You can read about them in the Bible, but until you experience them firsthand, you don't quite understand. I could feel my faith blossom. I could feel my faith grow. And I was conscious of the presence of Christ in my life. I could even hear the words of Christ. The Bible became alive to speak to me. I met him on the hillside on the north shore of Galilee, the place where he taught the Beatitudes. I could hear him on the water of the Sea of Galilee when the only other sound was the water slapping the side of the boat. I walked beside him up 2,000-year-old steps outside the house of Caiaphas, steps that I'm sure our Lord and Savior trod up And I could feel his presence down in the bowels of a stone-hewn prison where I'm sure Jesus spent time before his meeting with Caiaphas and then Pilate. Faith is so much more than simply going through the motions. Faith is something real and tangible. It's something that we live into. Faith is much more than simply acting pious. Faith is so much more than just simply saying, I'm holier than you are. Faith is living in Christ and having Christ live in you. And so that's Paul's first value, his value of faith. In the 16th century, a boy was born in the country of England And early in his life, he was stricken by a disease, a disease that left him grotesquely crippled for life. But despite suffering the handicaps and the pain that that disease brought, he became one of the greatest English poets to ever be born, to ever live. I'm sure many of you have read him in your high school English classes. Alexander Pope was the man a man who knew a life only of suffering and of pain. And he wrote these beautiful words that apply to all of us. Hope springs eternal in the human breast. Those were his words. And that's Paul's second point to the church at Corinth, that if you have hope in Jesus Christ, you have experience in the fruit of God's love. It's a feeling of joy and peace that you can't get anywhere else when you have hope in Christ. Have you ever been in a situation where you said, is there any hope? Have you ever been in a circumstance where you thought everything was hopeless? I have. I have. Especially when I've been in a hospital. Especially when I'm at bedside of somebody who is ready to die. And you ask, is there any hope? And deep down inside, of course there's hope. Because there's hope in Jesus Christ. And what's going to happen in the next hour or the next day or the next week? There's always hope. 
Hope is not some type of dreamy, unreal attitude that you have. Hope is an essential element of who we are. We can't really live without it because if we're hopeless, our life ends. How many people do you know who live hopeless lives? Hopeless lives. And yet the hope we have should always be hope in Jesus Christ. Hope that is tested by the fires of experience. Think about Paul. Think about what Paul endured. He encountered persecution. He faced sickness. He was shipwrecked three times. How many times have you been shipwrecked? He was beaten. He was imprisoned. And finally, he was killed. But his hope was so sturdy, so real, that nothing could shake it, nothing could diminish it, Nothing could defeat his faith. Nothing could destroy him because of his hope in Jesus Christ. There's a German theologian I've read. I know Sean has read. In seminary. Urgen Maltman. And he wrote this book, The Theology of Hope, and he writes these words. He says, the true Christian faith can only have a transforming effect on the individual, on the society, or on the world when it is rooted in a vision of hope. It can only have a transforming effect when it is rooted in a vision of hope. Christianity is hope moving forward. Christianity is hope looking forward transforming what happens tomorrow by what done today. Hope leads us to act with purpose in our lives, to anticipate God's work in the future, to believe so strongly in Him, to have a faith so secure in Him that our hope is in Him, that whatever happens today, we have no fear about what happens tomorrow. Hope is grounded in faith, and it reflects the strength and the persistence of God's love for us. Hope is about acting today because of what faith will do tomorrow. Let me say that again to you. Hope is about acting today because of what faith is going to do tomorrow. So we have faith, we have hope, And the last is love. What's the meaning of life? Any of you know? What's the meaning of life? Well, I might venture to tell you that the meaning of life is to love and to be loved. I believe it's a desire that we all have. It's an innate desire. It is a God-breathed desire to love and to be loved. Do you think love is more important than faith? Or love more important than hope? Paul thought it was. Paul thought that God's extreme love, His love for us, transcended both faith and hope. And it's not that faith is not essential and hope is not essential. They are both essential. But Paul is saying that love is more important than both of them. Love is the deepest, most pervasive, most enduring value of the Christian faith. It is the supreme expression of God. The supreme expression of God through His Son. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. 
I want to do a test. I want to do a test. All you mathematicians. What is a million times? Okay, well, you ready to go, Randall? Okay. What's a million times a thousand? And wait till the second round when the Jeopardy. No, I'll go ahead. What is it? A million times a thousand. Trillion. What's after a trillion? Whoa. Broken leg. What's after a trillion? No, it's a billion. Then it's a trillion. You, you got that wrong. Eh? It's a billion. Then it's a trillion. What's after a trillion? Quadrillion? What's after quadrillion? Quintrillion? You guys are failing this miserably. 18 zeros. Quintrillion. Okay, well, we're not going to do it that way. Let's do it the way the kids do it. Let's do it the way our young people do it. Take the biggest, baddest number in all the world, okay? And multiply it by the biggest, baddest number in all the world. Two big, bad numbers. They equal a really big number, okay? You all with me so far? Multiply that number by zero. What do you get? Zero. Zero. No matter how large, no matter how big that number is, if you multiply it by zero, you still get zero. Doesn't matter what you start with. If you multiply it by zip, zilch, zero, you get mm, zero. That's what Paul is saying about the Christian life without love. You can pile up all your good deeds, all your education, all your spiritual gifts, all your noble works. But without love, it still equals zero. You can be smart, beautiful, strong, wealthy, educated, multilingual, rich, famous, but if you are without love, what do you get? Zero. You can go downtown here to Danville. You can give away all the possessions you have, then open your wallet and start giving cash out to the homeless there on the corner. But if you do it without love, what do you have? Zero. Zero. That's what Paul is saying, that Christ has taught us, that without love, it's all zero. It doesn't make any difference. You can be more Christian than Christ himself, but if you are not committed to a life of love, it is all for naught, and you haven't gotten the message of the gospel. It's zero. Remember in the first century, the religious Jew had over 600 commandments that they were trying to follow for the religious, pious life. And here comes Jesus Christ in the midst of all that and gives them a new command. What does he say in John? He says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you as my disciples if you love one another. Did you hear that? Do you hear that? The world's going to know you by your love. That's really the only way the world is going to know you, by your love. It doesn't make any difference how many Bible verses you can quote. It doesn't make any difference whether you have perfect attendance in worship. It doesn't make any difference whether you give a million dollars to the church. Well, you may want to give a million dollars to the church. But without love, it's zero. It's zero, and it doesn't mean anything. 
Those are all wonderful acts of devotion, but none of them matter if you don't have love. You still, in the end, get a big, fat zero. Richard Seltzer is a surgeon who passed away a couple of years ago. He spent his career at Yale Medical Center as a doctor and also at Yale University as a professor. And later in his life, he began to write. He has some wonderful books. And he wrote because he had an impulse to find a deeper meaning in medicine. He used to call medicine all at once murderous, painful, healing, and full of love. And he wrote a great book. Probably his first book was the very best, Mortal Lessons, Notes on the Art of Surgery. And he writes this story in the book. He tells about operating on a woman's cheek and taking out a malignant tumor. And as careful as he was in that operation, in order to take out the entire tumor, he had to cut a nerve, a nerve that was attached to her mouth that left her with a very crooked smile. He talks about standing over the bed of the young woman in post-op, looking at her mouth twisted in a clownish fashion. And as much as he had wanted to keep that smile, he had to sever that nerve in order to save that woman's life. And she would look that way from now on. Making his rounds one afternoon, he went to visit her. And as he entered her room, he noticed that she and her husband were enjoying a moment of quiet intimacy. And he stopped at the door, not not wanting to interrupt their time together. But finally, the woman from the bed noticed that she was there. And she asked, will my mouth always be like this? And the doctor said, yes, I'm sorry. I had to cut the nerve. And then her husband jumped in. He smiled and looked down at her, and he said, you know, sweetheart, I like it. I like it. It, It's sort of cute, just like you. The doctor didn't know what to say, but the husband leaned over. He was going to kiss his wife's crooked mouth, and as he did so, he twisted his own lips so that their lips would come together to show her that their kiss still worked. Isn't that what the incarnation of Jesus Christ is all about? That God's kiss still works on the brokenness of our lives because He loves us so much. That's what Paul was trying to tell the church at Corinth. That's what Paul is telling the church here at Centenary. They will know you by your love. And now these three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is 
Would you bow your heads with me, please?